What's up, everyone? I want to tell you guys about my friends over at GT Nursery. Green Touch Nursery is located at 8842 Park Street in Bellflower, California, 90706. Oscar, the owner of this nursery, is a dear friend of mine and was actually a guest on this podcast on episode number 28 titled The Shed with his brother Edgar. Make sure to check that out. Oscar's been growing plants since he was 10 years old and was exposed to nurseries his entire life. His family owned multiple nurseries, so he grew up working in these places and lives and breathes plants every single day. He opened this place up back in February 2015. They are open on weekdays 8 to 4 and weekends 9 to 3. They specialize in cacti and succulents from all over the world. And let me tell you, with Oscar, the knowledge goes deep. This dude is constantly in the field doing research, going to botanical gardens, getting with really experienced growers and asking all kinds of questions. So you don't just get a plant, but you get the knowledge and passion behind this place. And that can really be felt when you're there. Their mission is to create a community of like-minded individuals from all walks of life that enjoy beautiful plants. I would say they have succeeded in their mission. I've attended multiple plant swaps and meetups. And this place is really like a home base for the for those of us in the local community. They also host these big sales where he brings in vendors from all over the place, really bringing amazing and obscure plants to the table. You need to head over to their Instagram at GT Nursery. I will make sure to plug a link to all of their socials and content in the description of every episode. He does these live auctions every Wednesday evening, and it's a lot of fun. He's constantly uplifting other members of the community and really giving other people an opportunity to come on to this very successful auction and sell plants. I've done it a couple times and it's amazing to see the success that they've had. Oscar and Edgar have really dedicated themselves and honed their craft and have been very consistent with these auctions. It's a lot of fun. Even if you're just watching, it's one of my favorite things to do on a Wednesday evening. You can head over to their Instagram for more info. I'm very grateful to have this partnership and to be telling you guys about this place. Green Touch Nursery, 8842 Park Street, Bellflower, California, 90706. Tell them I sent you. Hello, my plant friends. I want to take a moment to talk to you guys about mushrooms. No, not that kind of mushrooms. I'm talking about reishi, chaga, shiitake, maitake, ergo, cordyceps, lion's mane, all these different mushrooms that have been used for thousands of years in Chinese herbal medicine. It is ancient wisdom that there are tons of health benefits to consuming mushrooms of all types. And I recently started supplementing with this company called Real Mushrooms. If you haven't had the chance to listen to episode 38 featuring Jeff Chilton, I highly recommend it. He is the founder of this company and an ethnomycologist who's been studying mushrooms for a really long time. He really breaks it down for us. Another good resource for this information would be the movie Fantastic Fungi. Definitely recommend that. Or you can just click on one of the links in the description of every episode that will take you to articles that outline all the different health benefits of these mushroom supplements. Now, I'm going to run through all the ones that I've actually been taking myself. So Real Mushrooms offers these hot water extracts that are made from the whole fruit body of these mushrooms, and they come in both powder and capsule form. So I've been taking the five defenders in the capsule form, and it's a blend of turkey tail, reishi, maitake, shiitake, and chaga. Now, all of those mushrooms have been proven to boost the immune system. So who couldn't benefit from having a boost in their immune system right now? Another one that I'm taking is the Mushroom D2Z, which is a blend of reishi and chaga only. It is infused with vitamin D and zinc. Now, the vast majority of the population is deficient in vitamin D. So what better way to get it 
than in these mushroom supplements that come with all these other health benefits. Another one that was recommended to me, but I'm taking in the powder form, is chaga. So chaga has been used to help improve issues with digestion. So if you have something like IBD, IBS, I highly recommend this. I've been taking it at night, mixing it with my sleepy time tea, and I've noticed a huge improvement in my digestion problems. So anytime I'm about to do a podcast, I take lion's mane or right before work. Lion's mane has been proven to help with cognition. It is a nootropic that some studies suggest that may even be creating new neural pathways in your brain. So anytime I think I'm going to have to use my brain a lot, I take the lion's mane. And the last one that I'm taking is cordyceps. So cordyceps are used by athletes for performance enhancement, and they're known to really help with endurance and boost your energy levels. So if you're feeling really low energy, start trying this cordyceps. I'm taking it every day and my energy levels are way up. So that's all the ones that I'm taking myself personally that I can speak on, but there's testimonials for every single one on the website of Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. If you're ready to pull the trigger and want to make a purchase and start supplementing these mushrooms, make sure to click on one of the links in the description of my episodes, or you can go to the link in my bio on my Instagram and click the little button that says real mushrooms and it has a little mushroom emoji. Or you can use code if plants could talk at checkout and you'll get 10% off all future orders. However, if you're a first time buyer, you can sign up to get a first time buyer code of 25% off your first order. So definitely do that. It would help me out a lot if you guys use my link and use that code at checkout. So make sure to go check them out. Real mushrooms. This podcast is brought to you by Mezcala Nursery, located at 6901 Orange Avenue, Long Beach, California, 90805. Mezcala is family-owned, family-ran since 2007. This is the House of Succulents growing grounds. I'm talking everything you can possibly imagine in the succulent realm, from your common everyday plants to your more rare and obscure imports. They can service your landscaping needs and they have a bunch of hoop houses dedicated to houseplants and tropicals. If you guys need any kind of plant, I'm telling you, go to Mezcala. If you bring them a price from another nursery, they're going to beat it. If you bring them a price from a big box store, they're going to beat it. 6901 Orange Avenue, Long Beach, California, 90805. Mezcala Nursery. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to If Plants Could Talk. This is Garrett. I'm your host. This conversation took place on December 2nd, 2021 with my guest, Ed Rosenthal. For those of you that are not familiar with Ed, many refer to him as the guru of ganja. If you are a member of the cannabis community, then there's a good chance this man needs no introduction. He is a horticulturist and published author He's really well known for his advocacy for the legalization of cannabis here in the United States, particularly in California. And he actually served as a columnist for High Times Magazine back in the 80s and 90s. He was involved in a very high profile case back in 2003, where he was prosecuted federally on cannabis related charges. And he goes into detail about what that experience was like for him. I'm very grateful that he was open about that. His most recent book is called The Cannabis Grower's Handbook. He explained to me that it's for everybody, whether you are a beginner, you know nothing about plants, or if you're very advanced and growing commercially, this book is for you. I'm really looking forward to reading it, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you guys this episode. It was an absolute honor to have Ed on today. I hope you guys enjoy 
Here's Ed. Ed Rosenthal, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. It's an absolute honor to have you on today. Um, I'd like to start by saying, you know, I'm, uh, we're, we're not necessarily a cannabis podcast, but I do have some experience growing cannabis over the years and haven't been active in a number of years. So you might have to forgive me on my lack of knowledge of terminology or current events in the cannabis community. However, I'm a very active member of the cactus and succulent community, and a lot of my followers grow uh, sacred types of cacti. So peyote cactus, San Pedro cactus, those types of things. A lot of us are mycologists. We, we grow psilocybin mushrooms. And there is uh, some percentage of people that do are growing cannabis or in the cannabis industry. So I'm hoping we can find a way to tie all those together. I was looking at your website, and I saw there's actually quite a bit of information on uh, psilocybin mushrooms on there as well. Yes, um, you know, I, uh, uh, I, I'm a publisher as well. So I published two books on uh, psilocybin. One is Psilocybin Grower's Guide and uh, uh, another book as well. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah. Yeah, I had Jeff and, Chilton on. Are you familiar with Jeff Chilton? Yeah, and I uh, heard that podcast. Uh, oh, you did that, that you did with him. Yeah, he quite quite a uh, quite a fellow. Wow. Yeah, I like that yeah. guy. Really nice yeah. guy. Yeah. So can so, we can we start with some background information? Well, where where did you fall in love with plants? Where did it start? Did it start with cannabis, or did it start with growing? You know, uh, uh, when I was a kid, I was very interested in uh, plants and gardening and botany. And uh, that continued from uh, early childhood. I used to take classes at the New York Botanical Gardens in the Bronx. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you have some formal training as well? Like, uh, are you, did you study botany? Or I know you te- you've taught, correct, at, at, the, at Oaksterdam? Uh, I've uh, um, self-taught. That's, that's amazing. Uh, when I say self-taught, that, I mean... Um, uh, I used, uh, I had a thorough use of textbooks, but just not in class. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wouldn't exactly say it's self-taught. It's just that uh, I didn't need the professor repeating what the book said. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, everything I do is definitely self-taught and I, I appreciate that because I mean, look at the success that you've had in your career. Um, so, yeah, what what kind of plants did you grow originally? Uh, African violets, begonias, cool, and uh, different uh, succulents. Nice, mostly euphorbias. Euphorbias, yeah, awesome. Like the clusters, I love those. Uh, yeah, like the snowflake too. One of my favorite oh. euphorbias. Uh, well, they have so many different forms. Sure. Yeah. So, absolutely. Aloes. I had a group of aloes and uh then in uh in some of my classes at the botanical gardens i grew typical vegetable garden Mm. and and is that pretty similar to in some ways like growing tomatoes at least is pretty similar to growing cannabis well not really they have they have different needs and um different uh different uh life forms and lifestyles and so there's a little bit of difference but 
you know, um, all plants function on the same basis of uh, photosynthesis and mm. converting the energy from light into uh, into sugars. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So where did the cannabis start? Because I mean, I know that's your specialty. So we'll go there. What? How did that start? Well, um, I uh, tried cannabis when um, I was in college and uh, decided that uh, um, uh, that we were going that cannabis and I were going to have a long term relationship. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Yeah, and so. Uh, it was only natural that I would start to grow it because, uh, you know, I, I liked grow, I liked cu- cultivation of plants. So that would be a natural. And, you know, at the time when I first started, most of the marijuana was, uh, uh, was seed was from, uh, Colombia or Mexico mm-hmm. and it was seeded. So it was easy to top paint seed. So oh, that's how yeah. I started. Yeah, we would refer to that to that as like mids now, right? Or yeah. or stress. <laughs> well, I, I don't understand that, uh, but you know, uh, it, people weren't uh, um, the growers hadn't uh, uh, hadn't been growing sensimea. They they it was so it was all seeded, easy 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 to find seed. Mm. Was there a difference in concentration in those days? Well, well, there, there was all. Uh, uh, once people started growing scents uh, in the United States, um, the quality immediately improved uh, from the material that was coming from either Mexico or Colombia. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that was partly because of the freshness and beca- because of its handling. And also that it was sensimea became sensimea rather than the seeded material, but the, but uh, early on there was always high quality material. Um, it was it's just that the percentages of high quality material has increased. I see, I see, and uh, and it has gotten stronger. I mean, th- there were pro- there were things in the fifteen percentiles, even in the seventies and eighties, but. Not, uh, but it didn't reach the twenties and thirties that it does now. Mm, I see, and that's like yeah. uh, as a result of experimentation with with breeding, or how? It's because, how they... it, it's because of breeding, mostly because of breeding. Yeah, I see. I'm curious: is there any indigenous cannabis to North America? No, no. Okay, where did it originate? Well. Was it, well uh, colonists brought it over from different countries came from um uh europe as well as from india and africa how interesting because it grows so well here so yeah but um you know there was an ocean separating uh separating the uh uh the species from north america or from the americas and uh, it needed a means of transportation to get here. Mm. Was too too long for birds to carry it. So birds probably carried it from uh, the, the Himalayan foothills into the Caucasus, mm-hmm. and uh, then 
then it was an easy trip to get uh, into Europe. And uh, but there was no way of getting to the Americas until uh, until it was taken over on aboard ships. Fascinating. Thank yeah. you. And what about like uh, the Afghan strains? Are those indigenous or are those, were those brought there yeah, as that's well? The, the, no, that's part of the uh, the Himalayan foothills. Okay. It's, the Himalayan foothills stretch for thousands of miles into China and then further west until they hit the uh, Caucasus. I see. I see. So where where did your career start in cannabis? Uh, building uh, little um, tents for growing it. Mm. That's what I started doing in New York City, and then I met my co-author who was gro- who uh, was also growing, and uh, the two of us decided to write a book, and that became Marijuana Grower's Guide. Mm. There were two editions of that, a small book, and then we worked on a larger book. And that book pretty much transformed uh, cultivation in the U.S. and Europe. Hmm. So you're, when you say grow tent, you mean like an indoor setup? Yeah, yes. Okay, very cool. And that was in New York City. Wow. So people were putting these tents in their apartments. Hmm. So pioneering, pioneering the way right there probably wasn't very common in that area. Right. Yeah. Right. And also I was using my uh, real name and um, almost all the uh, marijuana writers of the time. And in fact, till this day, uh, you know, use uh, nom de plumes. I see. They must be ashamed of what they're doing or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, fear of prosecution, but, right, was prevalent. Well, you know, uh, you know, if you're in the stoop, you better take be able to take the heat. I like that. So you ended up doing some time, correct? Were you prosecuted yourself? Thirty six hours. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah. I had three uh, federal felonies. Wow. But, what happened was uh, I was appointed as an officer of the city to grow cannabis for patients. And that's the city of Oakland. And I was doing that. And I was told by the city attorney that I was free from prosecution by the federal government because I was a city officer, but the federal judge disagreed with that and put, and the trial continued. And, uh, eventually, um, uh, I, uh, uh, was convicted on three counts and the jury, after the trial, the jury found out what, what the trial was all about, all the information that they weren't allowed to have, that I was appointed by the city, that it was medical cannabis, that it was helping patients hmm. and they denounced their verdict. And that's the first time in American history that a jury has denounced its verdict. Wow. And it happened, the verdict happened on Friday that they denounced it on the following Tuesday as private citizens. And uh, that that trial changed the temperament of uh, uh, 
of reporting on medical cannabis and uh, uh, the persecution of providers. So were they able to overturn it? No, but the judge, um, the judge for reasons other than justice gave me only one day, one day time served. And that was because his social position in San Francisco, where he and his wife, Cindy, were socialites, was imperiled by his behavior at the trial. Wow. So he decided to make it up by giving me a day. Mm. He was still, he's still a punk and a thug. And he, he was a lot like a Nazi uh, judge who knew what the state wanted and he gave it to them. For political reasons, selfish reasons, not for justice. Not, not well, he, what, what he gave them was uh, my persecution. And then he realized that it put him in a little trap. Mm. And, you know, uh, but it remains that he was not just a punk and a thug and he acted improperly. And his family, his own family, had had um, uh, intersection with police and with uh, authorities over drug use. And he should have recused himself. Mm. I, I wonder how fairly common that that is anyways <laughs> well they just you know there's just a law going through or a bill going through congress now that judges have to report their uh uh their ownership uh and uh stock trades and such mm-hmm. because they were they were ruling in matters some judges were ruling in matters that would affect them mm you know, regarding corporations, but they did that on a personal level too. And uh, this judge should have thrown this case out. And other judges have said publicly that they would have thrown the case out. So, you know, but he, you know, he's a, he, he's a physically slight, short and slight. And um, like he had sort of a Napoleon Napoleon complex mm. that he wanted to control things, and he should never he didn't he should never have been a judge to begin with. He didn't he doesn't have the personality for it. Mm. He he interferes too much with the trials. Doesn't let all the information come out. It's just a punk. So you fought the law and you won. <laughs> Well, I I have three felonies. Yeah. But I only did one day. So um at the end of the trial, you know, there there were a lot of there was there was a lot of um publicity about the trial mm-hmm. and the trial was well attended and it was overflowing. It was like a movie cast so so to speak. And um uh, and at the end of the trial, uh, there was a press conference and all these members of these organizations, you know, that were helping me came out and they praised the judge for his foresight and, you know, uh, giving me one day and such. And I was the last speaker and I did not see this as a kumbaya moment where we were all going to join hands in a big uh circle dance 
And I uh, said rather vociferously that the judge had done me no favors, that uh, he uh, that nobody should go to prison for cannabis and yes. that the, ju the judge was totally unfair. And so so any uh, positive publicity that he would have gotten was diminished by coming back down to reality that he was just a punk. Yeah. I respect still that. Is. He still is a punk. <laughs> this man's still around. How? Huh? What year was this? Uh, this was in 2003 through 2007. Mm, so, yeah. But he's still, you know, it's 15 years later. But, you know, like, I'm a free man. He's still a punk and a thug. <laughs> and and I, I, I challenged the judge to go into a debate with me about his behavior at the trial. I would love to see that. But he would, I've, I've challenged him any number of times, but he won't do that because he knows what a punk he is. So did he retire? That he should never, he, he's uh, not an emeritus judge yet. He knows, he, he knew that he should never have been the trier, the, the uh, judge. He should have recused himself. Hmm. Hmm. So this is this is after after Compassionate Care Act, right? So you were you already medicinally licensed? I, as I said, uh, I was authorized by the city of Oakland to provide cannabis to patients, mm -hmm. and I was specifically um, deputized for that for that with paperwork. Mm. And the judge refused to accept any of that and refused to let the jurors hear about it. I see. So the, juror, the reason why the jurors came back was that they had been kept ignorant of the true facts of the trial by the judge not letting inf pertinent information in. Hmm. Corruption at the highest level. Yes. Yeah. He, the guy is still a punk. I still challenge him to debate me with his about his behavior at the trial. They should take his, uh, uh, they should fire him. Uh, ultimately, he should be fired and he should lose his pension, his government pension. Disbarred. Dis well, I don't know if they could disbar him, but he should lose his government pension. He's nothing but a punk and a thug. Hmm parading in a, in a black gown. Yes. I, I think a lot of them are. Yeah. Well, you know, I met a friend of his uh, at the uh, 215. There was a, a 40th anniversary of, uh, uh, you know, uh, 215 and uh, recently. And uh, a, a person who uh, was... Um, active in the movement, but was also a friend of the judge. You know, for all these years, she thought that the judge was, uh, you know, compassionate and giving me the one day and everything. Sure. And then I reminded her that if he hadn't done something like that, he would have been shunned by this uh, polite society that he, he and his wife hung out in and that uh, already they were being disinvited to parties he wasn't being, um, he, he belonged to a men's club that uh, no, he wasn't, 
other members weren't friendly with him during the trial mm -hmm. so that they knew what what the stakes were for them that is the judge and his wife and so that's why he did it and so when i mentioned that to her she had never she had always thought that he was so kind and compassionate and i reminded her that had he not done that he would have been shunned by society and after 15 years she finally got the truth about the person that she had been socializing with she understood then that he was nothing but a punk and a, a thug. punk and a thug <laughs> yeah i appreciate your passion on, on this it's not really passion i mean i you know it's long past but the re the the result is i don't feel guilt and i was right and he's a but he remains a punk and a thug so yeah you know you know like you know i think i'm well thought of in society but they'll oh he will always be thought of as people realize why he did it he'll always be known for what he is a punk and a thug nothing nothing more nothing less he should never been given a black robe he should have been given maybe horizontal stripes so was the prosecutor at that time kamala harris no 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 this, she was state and it was before she was in state government but this was federal so do you think the so, reason they went after you was because of how high profile and how much you had you had already been long advocating for the cannabis legalization were they trying exactly. to make an example of you yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what what they didn't realize is that I had had experience with, um, you know, I had been a, a uh, uh, an expert witness in any number of marijuana trials. Mm. And I, I had tangled with the federal government for other people's freedom any number of times mm -hmm. and um, that I was familiar with it. And I wasn't, you know, like. I wasn't as scared of it as uh, somebody who didn't have a political uh, a political aspect to their uh, behavior so that I was buoyed by um, knowing that I was right and um, that uh, that society, at least in the Bay Area, was on my side. So there were so and um, and also um i had just read this book called the tipping point by malcolm gladwell mm -hmm. and that was how how things it was about how societal things change and whether uh the tipping point is just whether it's just going to be ephemeral like uh uh some craze like hula hoops or robotic rocks or something or whether it's going to be uh, more of a permanent change and one of the things that where if the government had read the book where um, uh, in the book they talked about the ride of Paul Revere and mm -hmm. you know Paul Revere, Paul Revere rode in one direction notifying everybody that they should be go to Concord to fight the British and they also sent another person who's named I mean, it's known, but obviously he's not famous. Well, everybody store who uh, Paul Revere knocked on, they went to Concord. 
the other guy couldn't get anybody to go. And the reason why Paul Revere's knock um, uh, caused action, you know, knock on the door caused action, mm -hmm. was because he was a member of seven of the nine patriotic societies that were uh, in Boston. He was well known as an activist. I see. And when I was arrested, I was not, you know, most people were, were in one area. They were activists or they were growers or they were writers or, you know, they did one thing. But I was active in all those spheres. Mm -hmm. So I, I was in scientific societies such as International Cannabis Re Canna Cannabinoid Research Society, which consisted mostly of PhDs. And on the other hand, I was a publisher of, of marijuana literature. Mm. So I had people from various different aspects of the of that culture and who so that when I was arrested, it was and uh, when I was on trial, it was uh, New York. It was um, featured in The New York Times, for instance, mm -hmm. and somebody else, if they had done that with somebody else, they wouldn't have got that. So right. the government didn't realize what they were up against not that i was so powerful but that i had affected i was involved with so many different aspects of it that i would draw from many different parts of the community all at once yeah i think they underestimated the power of the movement altogether that's right well you know in 1967 when people first proposed legalization of marijuana about 13 percent of the population thought it should be legal Mm. So it took it did take 50 years. Nobody thought that it would take that long, but it did take 50 years. But there's, uh, you know, ch there's the change has come. Yeah. Yeah. Could you have possibly foreseen it when you first got involved or even at that trial date to become what it has become today? I, I'm shocked that it took 50 years. Mm. I mean, when um, when I was first using uh, cannabis in my 20s, um, I never expected that it would take this long. Mm -hmm. And as for becoming an industry, so once something is legal, then it's not going to be an outlier. It's going to follow the same economic laws as, um, you know, same economies as uh, other industries mm. and that's what's happening yeah so if you want it to be all you know go back to the dealer and uh, uh, perhaps less expensive marijuana what you want to do is make it illegal well that that's conflicting so <laughs> what what about decriminalization versus legalization do you think that there's a, that's a not better viable. route that, that's not decriminalization isn't viable in this economy mm. because it puts there's the gray areas to it and shadows yeah. and it, it has to be a full part of the economy to it, legalization brings with it integration into the economy. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you another example of it. Gambling. Uh huh which, you know, it used to be furtive. It used to be illegal to gamble, to, to have a gambling establishment or anything like that. 
Well, once it becomes legal, it just becomes part of the economy. And you can buy gambling stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, for instance, casino stocks. Sure. And that hasn't put a stop to illegal gambling anyways. There always will be a black market for cannabis, for gambling, right? Uh, well, if you prefer well, that route, there's, there's, uh, 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 with gambling, um, I think that the uh, that making it legal put a major dent into uh, it the illegal use of gambling. Mm, sure, it probably the same for cannabis too. Correct or or no? Well, uh, the thing with cannabis is that there's an in, there's increasing population of cannabis users. So uh, even though the uh, I don't like the term black market, I, I like alternative or traditional market. As traditional, terms. I like that. But, but even though the traditional market, um, uh, I think that the the uh, the official market is more likely to gather occasional users and uh, you people who use smaller amounts of it yeah but that the alternative market is going to pick up a lot of the chronic users who use large quantities of it because there's a significant difference in price so that that affects the uh individual's eco- uh, economy and looking at it for instance um you know that that some pounds now are selling for a thousand dollars or less a pound yeah and in the dispensaries ounces may be selling for three to four hundred dollars an ounce so that's a great disparity and so somebody who's using large quantities is going to seek an alternative purchasing method other than the uh, official stores mm. now it's tough to get alternative uh plant material i don't want to call it product but i guess that's what it is now uh alternative supply into the legal market now it's a lot harder at least in california right because you have to be branded licensed and all that just to even get it into a shop now well uh yeah yes Hmm. but um the the question is are shops selling are uh manufacturers selling it through the back door yeah, I see. and and I I would say uh, I I don't want to give percentages, but certainly there's an incentive for people to do that. Mm. And export still to the medical states, the states that are behind. I know that there's some export going on, correct? Well, well, eighty percent, you know, eighty percent of the Humboldt crop went out of state. Yeah, it went it went east, mm. and one of the reasons why there's this depression uh, and uh, low prices for the outdoor weed in California is that some of the Eastern Saints where they were shipping to are now producing their own material. Hmm. So there's a glut of, of certain grades like the Humboldt grades. Hmm. But California is still sought after, right? I mean, it has a special place in the market. Not in California. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Well, it is what it is. I mean, the people who went up into Humboldt County did not go up for the fertile soil or the w- wonderful weather or anything. They went up because it, it was 
a good place for their furtive efforts. Hmm. But now that it's legal, um, there's no incentive to grow in Humboldt because um, it doesn't have the it doesn't have great agricultural weather. It doesn't have great agricultural conditions or soils or anything like that. And most of uh, most of uh, California's weed now is being grown down south, where uh, in either in the desert or in other greenhouses or outdoors, hmm. where which is better weather for it. Wow. It's not it's not hitting Central Valley yet because uh, it's still illegal in a lot of those counties. Hmm. But as soon as it as soon as it becomes legal in the Central Valley, you're going to have vast acreage. Well, if they get water again, you're going to get have vast acreage of cannabis hmm. in, in the valley. But, you know, uh, the only reason people went up to Humboldt was, as I said, because it was harder to detect up there or sure. to, to capture. So, um, and even though uh, people in Humboldt say, well, they're going to have an appellation, you know, where, you know, it called Humboldt weed, but, you know, within California, Humboldt weed does not have the same uh, magical tones that it has in, in, in the East. Mm. Well, I'll say on a personal level, uh, preference-wise, when I, if I smoke flour, there's I don't think that there's anything for me that tops like light depth California grown uh, Blue Dream. Or we used to get these pure cushions. I have a friend up there that's uh, in Garberville, and I've spent some time on a garden up there too. And uh, I, I think that it's unmatched personally. I'm not really into the super high tech modified grown indoor, and it never really was. Um, but yeah, there's something special about it for sure. Well, um, here's the thing. You mentioned two things. One was that it was light depth. Mm. So it wasn't using uh, Humboldt's natural ecosystem. It was modifying that ecosystem. Sure. Or it might be grown in hoop houses uh, mm -hmm. up there a lot, which modifies it somewhat. But... Um, but that's a mod those are modifications of of areas that are not really agricultural areas mm. yeah and and uh so the um, um so it's easier to grow really high quality weed in an agricultural area that gets uh, uh that that is uh sunnier and has a longer growing season. And, uh, so that's, uh, so that's what makes Southern California more attractive than the Northern areas. So you argue I'm not that saying it... you can't, I'm not saying you can't grow excellent wheat up there, Yeah, but, but one thing is you were already modifying the environment to do yeah. that. So, Imagine if you could do the same thing without having to do the light depth. I see. So you argue it could be replicated or improved via Southern California, for example. No, I'm saying that the only reason that that was chosen as an agricultural area for cannabis is because it was hard for the law to interfere with it. Mm. I see. 
and the people who are still up there who are doing it, if they wanted to get serious, they would go into uh, into a more agricultural area where they would get better results for their efforts mm. or easier results. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the application of the funding with the legal market? What do you mean? With, with what, how they're directing the funds or how it's Which, being pumped back into the economy um, or the current system uh, with the legal with the legal market of cannabis well you know um, um, it certainly it it has a different uh, economic structure because uh, uh, to an extent before the money w- uh, the money per the per the money that growers collected for their product was recycled within the community, mm-hmm. and now it's a more standard system where the money is recycled up to the own, owners, gigantic owners of these corporations, like the for instance the Canadian and American corporations involved in cannabis. Mm. But uh, I think the most important thing is that, like the tomato market, that the cannabis should be like the tomato market in which there are both uh, larger producers and smaller producers, but most tomatoes are actually grown by home growers. Mm. So like locally? Yeah. But, but by home growers. I mean, they're not going into commerce yeah they're going farm to table or mm. garden to table yeah and i think i'd like to see that situation where that most of the cannabis that's grown is not grown commercially but grown uh by home for home use mm. and like a more small smaller business not necessarily smaller businesses only but also non-business, non-commercial cultivation. Hmm. Okay. Most tomatoes that are grown in the United States are not grown commercially. They're grown in home gardens. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, do you have a garden? I do. Yeah, but cactus, not not, uh, not, not no vegetables. No. But, you know, if you had a vegetable garden, if you like tomatoes, that would probably be the first plant that you put up. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so can you tell me about this book that it, there's a book that just came out, right? Or is it Can- cannabis growers handbook? Yes. It just came out October 26th. Okay. And, uh, it's a collaboration with, uh, Dr. Uh, Rob Flannery, who, uh, has graduated from UC Davis with a, a PhD in plant botany. Mm-hmm. Uh, plant biology and he um, also runs Dr. Rob's Gardens and then we he was my co-author and we collaborated with any number of other growers and, uh, growers uh, uh, university, university researchers mm-hmm. and uh, industry uh, people involved in the industry to produce this book and so it's um it's the first real college tech. It's both. It we we constructed the book 
so that somebody who doesn't know what a green plant is can start with zero knowledge about plants mm. and then build up in the book. They don't, it's not something that is made that assuming that you have any kind of knowledge. Right. On the other hand, the book does go into some complex material that some people won't, won't need or don't need to actually go into. Sure. Uh, to, but uh, that other people will, that um, uh, people who are in the industry will find extremely useful. Mm. So, so uh, there are a lot of ways that people can use the book, but this book is meant for both people who are just starting out and perhaps have never grown a green plant mm. ever in their life as well as people who are already uh, quite proficient in this, mm. in, in the industry. And it, the, there's a, a, it's a complex template. template to, it was a complex template to put the book together, but the book eases people into uh, cultivation. So even if they're just growing a small garden, they'll find this book useful. And if they're growing a large, growing, uh, already growing uh, uh, commercially, they'll, they'll find information in this book that just, um, that a lot of it was developed for the book. We did a number of experiments. Some of them are going to probably be peer reviewed. Mm. And, um, as well as using, uh, uh, as I said, university professors and people who have been in the industry and uh, people who write. Also, people like Danny, da da for instance, Danny Danko uh, and other uh, uh, marijuana writers. Mm. So um, we... Um, we try to avoid jargon as much as possible so that people will not only be able to read it, but will be able to understand the sentences as well. Awesome. So it goes deep, but it's not something that you should feel is going to be a challenge. Mm. So and, it's palatable uh, for the yeah. layman. Oh, yeah. And what basically, this is written in a way that, uh, that it's very clear has specific information that people can use and will take you as deep as you want to go. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to go, you don't have to go all the way into it to get the information that you need. Mm. And can it be applied to various types of gardens, um, both indoor, outdoor? Yes. And in fact, we have a se section on people who have really interesting, unusual gardens as well, okay. both indoors and outdoors. And uh, uh, we show different methods of cultivation. And uh, so it, it goes pretty deep in that. I see. Uh, do you have an opinion on, on indoor gardening with uh, like a closed loop system versus having an intake? I'm just curious. You, uh, you mean of nutrients or? No, like a closed, like a closed loop system, like having the room sealed or like bringing in air from outside? Well, um, you know, uh, plants grow fast. Marijuana is a C3 plant, and C3 plants uh, absorb CO2 when they're photosynthesizing. Mm. 
Uh-huh. And uh, if you give them higher percentage of CO2 in the air, then they'll grow faster. Mm. So in order to uh, maintain those high levels uh, in an indoor garden, you want to have pretty much of a sealed room for that. I see. Now, there are times when that that might be inappropriate. And also, um, uh, there's one company, AG Ag, which uh, they actually provide equipment for uh, using CO2 outdoors oh. and, in, in, uh, and in hoop houses and such. So, uh, but I think that, uh, that also another advantage of the closed loop, which we were talking about, yeah. is that there's less chance of infection coming in through the air. Sure. Even if air is filtered, some of the uh, insects and the ins- especially the juveniles, for instance, thrips juveniles can get through most any filter because they're so small. Mm. So uh, it would be it's better to have a closed loop where there's less chance of of uh, uh, importing an infection. Is it pretty common for people to bring in pests on their persons into a garden? Is that one way that they get in if you're not sanitary? Yes. Uh, you never want to go into a garden with, clo- for instance, with clothes on that you were working outdoors in. Sure. You want to go in with clean clothes or put a smock on, uh-huh. protect your shoes. When you go into... Uh, some of these big uh, gardens, people are, uh, uh, they, you know, they have hair nets, beard net, uh, beard, beard nets. Uh, the shoes are covered, or or else you have to put on shoes that are only used in in place. Mm. Um, so, some some places have you change into. Uh, uh, other other clothing or else put on a smock or or something like that over you over your other clothes yeah. so uh there and that's all because of uh the threat of uh importing disease or infections from uh outdoors by personnel mm. Mm. that's one of the re- that's another advantage of having doing as much robotically or or autonomously as much work in the garden either robotically or autonomously that you can and by what i mean is autonomously is maybe there are certain things that can be done in an automated automatic way for instance watering yeah or transplanting even transplanting yeah yeah well you know, when you buy a, a plant in, um, let's say you went to a box store and you bought some house plant, uh-huh. you might be the very first person to ever touch that container. Mm-hmm. It might have been filled automatically, the cut or seed placed in, in, in it automatically, watered automatically, and boxed automatically wow. without humans touching it. But and often autonomously, which means that uh, that 
the entire operation is programmed so that people don't have to be in charge of it. Yeah. Like the robots work autonomously or the, or the, or the watering system or, or maintaining the temperature. And there doesn't have to be a human there because everything's pre-programmed to maintain the environment. I appreciate your acceptance of modern technology. Uh, you know, some people would possibly be dismissive. And, you know, I do things old fashioned and adopting the, the these more modern ways of doing things is cool. Um, and uh, yeah, some of the technology is very advanced. Work smarter, not harder. Well, um, a lot of people have the myth that, um, you know, the you can only produce high quality marijuana using um, uh, like uh, uh on a craft basis and uh, i, I want to take you back uh to that box store uh-huh. where there are 200 o- orchid plants for instance or 200 um house plants of some kind all together uh-huh. and they lo- all look exactly the same and they all look super healthy and are super healthy yeah. because they were given the exact conditions that they like yeah so those uh, those plants did not have the loving care of people handling them. Mm. They, everything was done automatically in those and uh, autonomously. So, what makes you think that you can um, do, that an individual can duplicate it? Mm. But you know, you an individual is watering and then somebody goes over to him and says, oh, did you hear about Sarah? And the guy is still watering, but he's not paying attention <laughs> to the watering anymore. So the plants aren't getting the same treatment. So the whole thing about uh, plants needing love and craft, well, you know, uh, I, I've gone to any number of forests and I didn't, I didn't see the love circles. <laughs> The plants still seem to be doing pretty well in the forest. In fact, I've got a message from the forest. They say to people, don't come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we tend to ruin things like that. I guess you're right. Yeah. yeah. Please don't come visit us. Oh, man. We're doing fine. You don't have to check up. I wonder if I can take that same energy and perspective and apply it to my cactus garden somehow. I know a lot of people do automate a lot of things, um, but it's different when it, I guess when you're growing for a, a personal hobby for your own just enjoyment rather than growing to produce something at, at the highest quality possible that you're going to eventually consume into your ingest. Right. So, well, uh, I'm sort of a slacker, you know, and, <laughs> I, I, I don't there are aspects of gardening that I really don't appreciate, you know, sometimes. And so uh uh I find that I do that my plants do better when they're on uh some sort of automated or autonomous system. Mm. And you know, there are a lot of uh different systems that uh can measure, for instance, let, let's talk about watering. There are several ways that you could deal with watering. Mm-hmm. And I'm, uh, and one w- way would be to actually have a sensor there to determine when a plant needs water. Yeah. And there could be individual, and there are individual, individual sensors that you could put in each container so that each 
containers measured separately. Mm-hmm. They're not that expensive mm. to do. And then there, and uh, then another way of doing it, and what I do a lot, is I'll make a very porous soil that will only hold a certain percentage of water. Mm-hmm. So even if somebody overwaters and just pours gallons of water into a pint pot, at the end of it, uh, the pot will drain to the right amount of moisture. Right. So, you know, it takes care of uh, inadvertent mess ups. So there are a lot of ways of doing that and uh, doing it individually also. But I'm not saying that people shouldn't uh, tend to their own plants or, you know, people get enjoyment out of out of gardening and various aspects of gardening yes and uh so i'm i'm not suggesting that people should stop doing that but i'm saying that on a commercial basis it it's probably better for the plant to be to be on an autonomous schedule right yeah yeah because meeting meeting each plant's needs on a commercial basis uh by hand is next to impossible right well, uh, or time-consuming. Sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, and I, I don't, uh, you know, so if you have a person, let's say, uh, let's say it's a commercial enterprise and there's a person who's just watering eight hours a day. Yeah. What, what a waste that is. I mean, that could all be handled uh, uh, through automa- automatically and through automation. Absolutely. Yeah. They have those like smart pots now, right? Where they, they water from the bottom. I don't know what they're called. I think they're called smart pots, right? Well, well, smart pots are soft. They're, they're the soft pots. Um, uh, uh, they were the inventors of the small, uh, soft pots and, uh, they have, they're actually made, I was in Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma city. And I actually went to the factory uh-huh. where they're actually manufactured, there but they what uh but those are not right now they're not made as automatic watering containers okay but um they could be and um i hope that at some point they will be Mm. yeah we used to use the halos i had water halos and then i would just mix my my drum and dump the pump in there and it was pretty good pretty efficient the the halos Yeah, and if you have a soil, as I said, that that uh, had, has some porosity and that uh, has enough air spaces in it, yeah. no matter how much water you give it, it will drain down to uh, something that's good for roots. And the thing about roots is they, roots um, don't drown from too much water. Mm. They drown from not enough oxygen because roots, unlike... The um, canopy uses doesn't photosynthesize. It needs oxygen. The roots need oxygen. Mm. So if you supply it with oxygenated water, for instance, you know how people can grow plants just in water. And as long as the water is oxygenated, the roots won't drown. As soon as the water loses its oxygen, that's when uh, that's when plant the roots start to deteriorate. Mm. Yeah. I always thought that aeroponics system was really cool. I remember when they first started doing that and had a buddy had like a little 
little like uh, arrowhead water bottle he had converted into an aeroponic system and it's just constantly misting the the roots and i thought it was fascinating because they're bare root <laughs> right right and and because it it was uh that water was uh uh spraying into air um the plants the roots had plenty of oxygen mm. so they had both the two things that they needed the water and the oxygen yeah can I ask you a question about an area of contention in all, I think all sectors of the plant community is pH. So when we're talking about, let's just talk about cannabis. Uh, what do you, what is your opinion on, on ideal pH for watering? Well, um, some, um, some growers, um, change their pH during the, the, uh, during the plant's life cycle, and they go from uh, 6.2 down to 5.8. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, but the big thing is that you want... The, the reason pH matters is because different nutrients go in and out of uh, solution depending on the pH. Mm-hmm. And so if you had water at a pH between... Uh, Five eight and six two, you're going to have a situation where almost, not almost, where all of the nutrients are in are well in solution, mm. and so that's why you want to maintain that pH that pH range. Sure. When you go much out of it, you begin to get uh, uh, nutrients uh, precipitating. That is dropping out of solution. And plants don't eat; they only drink. So if the if if the water solution does not contain the nu- nutrients, the plants don't have access to them. Mm, mm. And that's one of the reasons why you want to use mycorrhizae as well. Yes, is because of mycorrhizae, mycorrhizae work sort of as root extenders, mm. where they extend the uh, power of the roots to uh, absorb nutrients mm. through these independent agents. Mm. Like great white? Yes. Okay. Does that differ? But there are many brands. Yeah. There, there are many brands, and they have a lot of different formulas with um, uh, different microbes in them. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I haven't done research to see which produce the best. Does the pH uh, needs differ on from species to species or genus? Both plant, but but, yeah. but uh, all of cannabis is one species. Okay, right. Hemp yeah. and and uh, cannabis. The only difference, you know, when you you know, the term hemp right now is a confused term because you know there's a legal definition of it, but in terms of traditional hemp. Traditional hemp was usually a fiber hemp or a seed hemp, uh-huh. and usually it, it had a different morphology than um, than marijuana plants in that it uh, it was bred so that it didn't have branching; it just had a single stem, sort of like a, a corn plant. You know, it just has a stalk, uh-huh. and then so that's that's what uh, that's what traditional fiber hemp look like now hemp is defined as anything that doesn't have thc in it mm. 
that's a little different. It's those are really, you know, traditional marijuana plants where the genes for THC and C- CBD have been transferred out of the traditional marijuana plant and uh, replaced with CBD uh, genes. I see. So, uh, but it's all one species. I mean, you could take any of those plants and cross it with the uh, with the other. Mm-hmm. And all of those plants also have been developed by humans, all those different varieties. Uh-huh. So they all came from the same, they all started out from the same plant. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Could I ask you real quick before we close out about cannabinoids? Well, can I ask? <laughs> well, I was just saying, do you have a moment? Maybe just a couple more minutes. Yeah. yeah okay. Great. Great. Um, I'm just curious about this boom in focus on cannabinoids and terpenes, um, and and maybe some of your thoughts on that. I know, like like cur- currently in the cannabinoid section, uh, like the CBG, CBN, these newer compounds are. Is that is that relatively new, or did you guys have knowledge about this? already well um there's been a lot of that uh over the past 25 years cannabis is there's been so much research in cannabis Mm -hmm. and certainly the cannabinoids have been defined but because they were available only in very small quantities up to recently Uh there hasn't been much work with them and now there's more work like, for instance, THC-8 right. rather than Delta-9, you know, Delta-8. And then there's also uh, all CBG, CBN. And the, because um, um, cannabis plants traditionally only had minor amounts of those, they weren't really tested or they weren't really uh, examined as much. But now there's more interest in them. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, the plant certainly has a lot more, uh, to give and, uh, people haven't really, uh, been examining, for instance, examining the, uh, chemistry and the roots mm. yet very much, but I think that th- that's going to happen as well. So you think we've just scratched the surface of the cannabis plant? Mm. Well, well, there's Science. a lot more to learn. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Cool. And what what exactly could you define what, what terpenes are? Because I'm not sure I have the best understanding of what they are and why they're so sought after or focused on currently. Okay. Well, terpenes are, um, they, they consist of, uh, uh, of a, uh, they're an oil. Uh-huh. They're oils, and they consist of uh, a mo- molecular uh, ratio of uh, five carbon mo- C five uh, H eight, uh-huh. which is uh, you know, um, and then they have they have multiples of it, and basically, you know about aromatherapy sure. and uh, how all those oils affect. They actually affect the brain and some body parts and such. Sure. All the terpenes are, they're the same chemistry, 
that's used in aromatherapy. Mm. Uh, for for instance, limonene, which come which is found in citrus and citrus peels, is also manufactured by can by cannabis. Oh wow! So that you know when you have something that smells like like orange or lemon, it has that same chemistry, limonene, that is produced by citrus. And then you have, and so the thing is, all of those terpenes have a profound effect, or many of them have a profound effect on our consciousness and our feelings. Mm. For instance, rosemary uh, has been proven to uh, temporarily improve brain acuity and it also uh uh and it also uh is uh, sort of uh works in uh also makes you more active and more awake mm. while uh, uh other chemistry will like for instance uh, uh la- the uh the terpenes that are in lavender makes you more relaxed and um, can even put you to sleep so that there are all these different um, uh, different odor molecules uh, and uh, the and those odor there are all those different odor molecules and they all affect people in different ways mm-hmm. thank you for for elaborating on that I really appreciate that yeah all right all right so where can everybody find you Ed uh, just look me, put my name into Google and you'll get all kinds of stuff. Cool. And you have a website too, right? At Rosenthal.com. Yeah. That, that will all come up from that, from just putting my name into Google. Excellent. You are an encyclopedia of, of plants, my friend. Thank you very much for the wealth of knowledge you shared with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. Yes. Okay. All right, Ed Rosenthal, everybody, if everyone could please like, review, and subscribe to the podcast and hit that share button, I would appreciate that greatly. Bye.